And that by believing in that, by believing in that life-changing, life-giving truth, by believing in Him, you may have a life in His name. That's what John himself writes at the end of this gospel in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name, namely eternal life. Therefore, everything I say today from the gospel of John must be shaped by that statement. Because that's what caused John, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to write this book. Therefore, I'm not allowed to stand up here and proclaim anything I want to. I have no right to lean on this text to support my own notions. I'm bound in this regard. We come to hear the Word of God today at Cornerstone Refrain because nothing else will do. And today, in this glorious passage, and there's no other fitting word for it, this glorious passage. We're, we're given an invitation by God to see what the Apostle John witnessed with his own two eyes. We're invited this morning at Rafraeland as the people of God to come and delve into this gospel and see Jesus' glory. The Word became flesh. It made His dwelling place among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. So John saw Christ's glory, and having seen Christ's glory, John now invites us, the reader, over 2,000 years later, to join him in seeing Christ's glory also, that he is the Son of God, the God who has made his dwelling place among his people, that with the coming of Christ, the glory and the presence of God that was formerly in the tabernacle is now found visible among his people reigning through Christ. And it's with that introduction in mind, I've, I've summarized my sermon today for our passage into a phrase that is borrowed from the words of the apostles in John chapter 1. I simply called my sermon, we have seen the Messiah, come and see. We have seen the Messiah, come and see. That was my prayer for today. My prayer is that we would see His glory this morning as the Son of God and our only hope. That we would see Christ's glory displayed in the calling of His disciples found in this passage today. And that we would use the truths of this passage as templates. Not just to hear it and do nothing about it, but use this as a template to go out of here changed more like Christ. That's the goal for today. And I pray that God will work in our lives this morning. Pray that he would save people. That he would show people his glory for the first time in this meeting this morning or to those who are watching online. That people would follow Jesus with the same ardor as the disciples did in this passage and come into that newness of life for the first time. And I pray for those of us who are already saved, already walking in that newness of life this morning, I pray that we would once again be completely enamored by Christ's glory, that we would fall in love with it as we hear his word this morning. I pray that it'll be a grace and a refreshment to you. 
We have found the Messiah. Come and see. And we're going to come back to that sermon title throughout and particularly towards the end. But until then, here's what we're going to do. If you're, if you're a note taker this morning, I've broken our sermon up into two parts just to make it easier to follow and understand. And again, I've used the sermon title as the division. So verses 35 to 42 is what we're going to look at first. And I've titled it, We Have Found the Messiah. Verses 35 to 42, We Have Found the Messiah. And then we're going to look at verses 43 to 51, come and see. 43 to 51, come and see. So, and I just, I invite you to to join me in reading verses 35 and 42 again, just to refocus our minds uh, and bring the Word of God back to the center of our attention and the center of our worship this morning. So, please follow along, verses 35 to 42. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Amen. Between 1940 and 1941, the German forces of World War II launched a bombing campaign against the United Kingdom known in history as the Blitz. We're familiar with the term. And this bombing campaign, it was a brutal atrocity. It claimed the lives of 43,000 civilians, half of Britain's total civilian deaths for the entire war. And that eight-month bombing campaign is now ingrained in our minds as a culture. We as citizens living within the United Kingdom hear the word blitz, and immediately our minds are drawn to our nation's history. Our minds are drawn to history class or to movies like Hope and Glory or Darkest Hour or the beginnings of Chronicles of Narnia where the Pevensey children have to flee London just because it's too dangerous to live there now. In other words, our culture is so familiar with the Blitz that we understand all the related terms associated with it on some level or another. If I asked you to give me a list of words associated with the Blitz, I'd get replies such as air raid sirens, bomb shelters, wardens, gas masks, evacuations. And not only would you know these terms and be familiar with them, you'd you'd understand exactly how they're connected to the history of the Blitz. The siren warned the people. The shelters protected the people. The wardens guided the people. And the list just goes on and on. And the reason I include that in my introduction this morning is for this reason. I want you to think of that level of nationwide familiarity which the Welsh, the Irish, the Scottish, and the British people have whenever they think of the Blitz. I want you to think of that level of nationwide familiarity when you think of the Jewish people 
and what they would have thought when they heard John proclaim what he says in verse 36 and 41. When Jews heard the terms, behold the Lamb of God, and we have found the Messiah, alarm bells sound off in their mind of an entirely different type. Immediately, they know exactly what John's getting at here because they grew up their whole lives hearing these terms. These words are a part of their nation's history, a part of their heritage and culture. Even the most nominal of Jews would have understood those terms and knew what they meant. And more importantly, they would have knew who they were associated to. So in other words, what I'm saying is this. They would know that whenever John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God, said, this man's talking about the Christ. John is calling Jesus the long-expected Christ. And if this is true, if John's testimony is true, it changes everything. Absolutely everything, instantly, in a moment. To call Jesus the Lamb of God is to call to mind the sacrificial lamb in Leviticus that covered the sins of, peop- of the people. To call Jesus the Lamb of God is to call to mind the Passover lamb whose blood spared Israel from God's wrath. And John, as well as every other true believer, understood that these were just shadows pointing forward to a Messiah. Hebrews 10 and 4 writes, blood and, The blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sins. These things pointed forward. They produced an expectation among the people of God for a Savior to come and one day fulfill the requirements of the law on their behalf. And here is John the Baptist proclaiming Jesus as that Messiah, as the perfect sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. All of that is encapsulated in that one title, the Lamb of God, and it belongs to Jesus alone. You see, John was not just waxing eloquent, as we say here. John was saying, this is the one we've been waiting for who will take away our sins. My sins, your sins, the sins of all who would believe in him and heed the call of the gospel. And at that point, I want to take the time to pause now. I don't want to bring it in just at the end. I want to weave it throughout the sermon. I want to ask, are there some of you here today who are realizing this for the first time, who have realized the emptiness of everything else but Jesus, who have been under condemnation of their own sin through conviction of the Holy Spirit, if there is, I say to you, there's hope. There's hope, and that's, that's why we're gathered here today as the people of God. There's hope in Jesus Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Repent and trust in Jesus. Now what John said, and I'm putting this very lightly here, what John the Apostle said was controversial to say the very least. But John didn't see it that way at all. John saw what he was proclaiming as the fulfillment of his entire ministry. John was the forerunner. He was asked the previous day by the Pharisees to identify yourself. Why are you baptizing people? Are you the Christ or Elijah or one of the prophets? John said, no, I'm the voice of the one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. There's one coming whose very sandals I'm not worthy to untie, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. 
And John, of course, he was referring to a 700-year-old prophecy spoken of in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And what immediately follows that voice crying in the wilderness, according to Isaiah 40, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. John understood that his ministry was to act as a forerunner to Jesus Christ. And we, we see the effect of his testimony. Please look at me. Turn our attention back to verse 37. We see the effect John's testimony has on his disciples. Two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. We're going to come back to that. We're not going to handle that right now at this point in the sermon. Instead, please go with me to the next two verses. We will come back to that and pull it all into a summary at the end. But read with me verses 38 to 39. Jesus turned and saw them. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said, Come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. So at this point, John the Baptist's disciples have hated his testimony that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and they've left John to follow Jesus. And when Jesus notices this, he turns and he challenges their motives and he asks, what do you want? In other words, are you following me out of idle curiosity? Are you following me out of the commotion or the hype that I'm causing? Or are you following me out of materialism or popularity or notoriety? In other words, are you following me meaninglessly? Or do you have a desire to really know me? To know me in a way that will forever, and I mean forever, change your life. Their response proved genuine. They wanted to know Jesus. They addressed him as rabbi, meaning teacher, a great one. And they asked, where are you staying? You see, they wanted to abide with Jesus and learn from him and learn of him. And so Jesus invites them and he says, you want to know me? Come and you will see. It was the 10th hour, I mean, it was 4 p.m. And they stayed with him, presumably the whole night. It says the rest of that day. And Jesus revealed his glory to them. Can you imagine that? So what can we learn from this encounter? Well, let me just give you one observation, just one. In fact, let me rephrase that. It's not so much an observation. It's a proclamation. It's a quote by Dr. John Piper, a man whose ministry I'm indebted to beyond words. Here's what we can learn about this encounter. In seeking Jesus, you will find Christ. In seeking Jesus, you will find no one else other than the Christ. Jesus not only has all the time in the world for those who seek to know him, he openly invites us this morning at Cornerstone Refryland at this church this Lord's Day, openly invites you to come and dwell with him so that in seeing him you may know he, who he truly is, that he is the Christ, that he is God incarnate, the giver of life, the fulfiller of life, the ruler of all things and the only way to heaven and to his own his grace will be absolutely irresistible. 
So this is an opportunity, and I've said it so many times before, challenges are healthy. They're healthy. This is an opportunity for us to examine our motives. What is more important than knowing Jesus? Nothing. Nothing. He's our highest priority because he's our highest need, our greatest need. There's only one road and one conclusion that you can come to after seeking Jesus in the pages of this book, and it's that he he is who he says he is, that he's our Savior. Any other conclusion is a suppression of that truth and a denial of that reality. He is the Savior of the elect who would believe in him. And again, I ask, are you part of that number? I would be unfaithful to the text and unloving to you if I did not present that challenge. If I did not issue the challenge to those who are with us either online or with us now who knowingly know that they are not followers of Jesus, I ask you, what will you do with Christ? What will you do with this truth that He's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one gets to the Father except through Him? And what will you do with the fact that He has spurred you breath this day to come and hear His gospel and offer you forgiveness? Today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, harden not your hearts, but come to Him. Seek Jesus. Find Christ. That is clearly what Andrew found after his interview with Jesus that night. Because the very next thing he does in verse 41, look at it with me. He finds his brother Simon and he says, we found the Messiah. Andrew sought Jesus. He found the Christ. And so he takes Simon to Jesus with him. And and in verse uh, 42, Jesus renames him Peter. He renames him Peter. And we, we don't have time to get into this whole Peter situation today, so here's what I will say because I believe that this is important and it must be said when the opportunity presents itself. Jesus gave Peter a name that was fitting to his character. And he named him after one of Jacob the patriarch's sons who was like Peter, a rash and sometimes impulsive individual. But let me be absolutely clear and say this. Peter's name being translated as rock has absolutely nothing to do with the claims made by some that he was the first pope. Nothing whatsoever. That is an incorrect understanding of this text. That is an incorrect understanding of Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. The rock upon which Christ would build his church, spoken of in Matthew 16, is this. One, the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah. And two, that foundation would be laid by the apostles whose role it was to write about the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. There's no mere man placed at the head of Christ's church because no man would do. And Peter would be the first to admit that, as he does in Matthew's gospel. It's his confession. He says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, you're absolutely right. And I will build my church on that reality. Christ alone is the head of the church. And thank God for that wonderful truth. 
Now let's just move on to the second part of our passage today. Let's move down to our second point, verses 43 to 51. Come and see. 43 to 51, come and see. And just before we reread it again, I want to give you, just up until this point, John the Baptist has He's prepared the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, he emerges onto the scene, testifying to all that Jesus is the Messiah. Or John emerges on the scene and testifies that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus has now revealed his glory to three disciples. John, Andrew, and Peter at this point, okay? And this next passage occurs the very next day where Jesus continues calling his disciples, particularly Philip and Nathaniel, So let's just read verses 43 to 51 again to reorientate ourselves and and refocus ourselves on the text. 43 to 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found the one whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Ah, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So, whereas the first disciples were introduced to Jesus by John the Baptist or or another disciple, Jesus directly calls Philip here. He says, follow me. Philip was likely a fisherman, just like Andrew and Peter. He was from Galilee. The the name of his hometown was Bethsaida. That translates uh, house of fishing. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, obeys Jesus and follows him immediately. And likewise, he immediately finds another person and proceeds to witness about Jesus to him, that person being Nathaniel. Philip, at this point, he's seen Jesus as God. He's believed in him, and now following him, he tells Nathaniel, no doubt with huge excitement, think about this. They've been waiting on the Messiah for thousands of years. And in their generation, the Messiah walks. Could you imagine the excitement when he went to Nathaniel and said, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote of, Jesus of Nazareth. And now Nathaniel, he he responds with pretty lackluster response, kind of like a sarcastic skepticism being detected by his response. He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And there's no reason to over-spiritualize what Nathaniel said here. There's strong evidence to suggest it simply there was rivalry. There was a general disliking and suspicion of one another between the towns. And as I said in the first place, it's not entirely unlike our own setting here in Northern Ireland, but uh, it's clear Nathaniel obviously did not like Nazareth or his people. 
Despite this, despite his response to Philip's, Philip isn't, he doesn't falter. Instead, Philip says, come and see. You don't believe me? Come and see, and you will see that I am telling you the truth. My study in this next part, I mean it when I say this, it completely blew me away in my study. Um, I was left without words. I just sat in my study, staring at the screen, blown away by what I had just read. And so I want to make sure that I communicate it faithfully to you, this next passage. I want it to, to be clear. So, so just bear with me here, all right? Verse 46, we've just read. Philip tells Nathaniel, come and see. You don't believe what I'm saying? Come and see. Now look at verses 47 to 48. Listen to this. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael stunned by this and asked in response to that statement, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Philip, before, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael's response to that comment is, Rabbi, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. Listen to his response to what Jesus said. You're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. But wait, rewind. What did Jesus say that was so revealing of his identity? He makes two comments, just two comments that change this man's life. In an absolute instant, Nathaniel's whole priorities just shift. And all of a sudden, he's proclaiming this man as the Messiah. But what did he say? He said, I saw you under a fig tree, okay. Hardly remarkable at face value. Hardly enough to warrant the responses that is given in verse 49, you're the son of God. Well, listen, that may be the case at first glance, but let's look closer. Here's what's remarkable about, about this entire encounter. Notice that Jesus calls out to Nathanael by saying, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And it stuns Nathanael and asking, How do you know me? There's a reason he's stunned and responds that way. And it's not so obvious to us here, to borrow an Irish phrase, it's hidden plain as day right here in the text. It's not so obvious to us. The reason he's stunned is because Jesus has just revealed to Nathanael that he knew what he was reading before Philip came to speak to him about Jesus. What do I mean? At this point, Jesus' comment to Nathaniel suggests, only at this point, it only suggests that he's been reading of Jacob's experience at Bethel in Genesis chapter 28, where Jacob's filled with deceit. That's the common teaching of the rabbis of that day, the deceit of Jacob. The deceit of Jacob forced him to leave home and after lying to his father and robbed his brother, he had to flee. It's known as the deceit of Jacob. So without knowing this, this comment that Jesus makes to Nathanael, ah, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit, sounds a little bit out of the blue, a wee bit off the cuff. It's missed on us. But it wasn't missed on Nathanael. Now you say, Mark, how can you come to the conclusion Jesus knew what Nathaniel was reading with just that. You're right. 
you're right. It's only suggested at this point. It's only suggested at this point. Now bear with me. Let's read on what Jesus says to Nathaniel. After Nathaniel asks him, how do you know me? Jesus says, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And it's after this statement that we see Nathaniel just burst with praise and say, you're the king of Israel, you're the son of God. Nathaniel's seen the glory of Christ and through saving faith acknowledges Jesus is exactly who he says he is. But how? Why even? Why would Jesus saying before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree I saw you cause Nathaniel to respond like that? What is miraculous about seeing a man sit under a fig tree? Well, that's not what Jesus was saying and Nathaniel knows it. We've just read a miracle here. We have just read and witnessed a miracle. Let me explain. You see, to the Jews, the phrase under the fig tree was a term they used to describe someone who sat under the law, who meditated on the law, and Nathaniel was a student of the law. And that day, he was under the fig tree, meaning he was reading the law before Philip came to him. And not only did Jesus know that Nathaniel was reading the law before Philip came to him, he even knew what he was reading. He was reading of Jacob's deceit in Genesis 28, hence the very sharp and astute comment, comment that Jesus makes to him. Ah, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. In other words, unlike Jacob that you read about earlier today. And to rule out any chance that this is mere coincidence to rule out any chance that I am performing eisegesis right now, which is completely wrong, and reading my own ideas into the text. Look what Jesus further tells Nathaniel. Before Philip I came, I saw you under the fig tree. In other words, I saw you reading Genesis 28. And in that moment, Nathaniel is floored by the revelation from Jesus because who can know the thoughts of a man when no one else is around, as Psalm 94 says? Who knows when you sit or when you rise and who understands your thoughts from afar, as Psalm 139 says? Who is all-knowing from everlasting to everlasting? Only the Lord God Almighty. So it's upon this revelation from Jesus to Nathaniel I saw exactly what you were doing before Philip even came near you, causes Nathaniel to recognize and see his glory and to say that Jesus is exactly who he says he is and proclaim him as God, saying, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. And it's as if this moment couldn't get any more amazing. This is like the woman at the well moment where she runs off saying, come and see a man who told me all I ever did. As if it couldn't get any more amazing, as if that's not incredible enough, Jesus then uses Jacob's dream from Genesis 28, the very passage Nathaniel was reading privately, to say this, you believe because I saw you under the fig tree, in other words, because I saw you reading my law, you will see greater things than these. And using Jacob's dream where Jacob witnessed heaven opened and a ladder which the angels of God ascended and descended between heaven and earth on, Jesus says, I am that ladder. I am that ladder. And it's times like these that I get so frustrated in my study because I wish I was a better orator of the word 
so that I could better proclaim the richness and the glory of this text to you people this morning. Oh, the richness of God's word. Jesus showed Nathanael, I am the fulfillment of that dream. Philip came and told you he found the Messiah and he specifically said it this way, the one of whom Moses and the prophets and the law spoke. Here's proof. I am the perfect fulfillment of Jacob's dream. I am the ladder. In other words, I'm the medium. I'm here to bridge the unbridgeable gap. I'm here to answer the human need that God's people have been crying out for since Genesis 3.15. I'm here to save a lost and dying world from their sins. We have found the Messiah. Come and see. And let me bring this to a close by asking a question. How can we apply this to our lives now, today? How can we go out with what I hope has been a grace and a blessing to you? How can we go out and do something about this revelation? And the answer, I believe, is plastered all throughout the text. And I'll give four applications now that are very brief, very brief, before I hand over to Marcus and the team. One, like John, Andrew, Peter, and Philip, and Nathaniel, we are to heed the call of the gospel and follow Jesus Christ. It's all over the text. We're to drop everything and follow him. And so, I ask you this morning, I come back to that challenge, if you have not done that, I ask, how will you walk away from the Lord Jesus Christ and his free salvation offered to you despite knowing everything you ever done just like you knew in Nathaniel's case. How are you going to walk away from that newness of life, that forgiveness and eternal life? He offers it to all who would believe today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today and you will be saved. He's your only hope. Follow him and don't turn back. Two, like John the Baptist, as Christians, our ministry is to be completely countercultural to what the world says. We must point away from ourselves and point towards Christ every single time. We must be content with losing followers as John did with his two disciples for the greatest treasure of all, knowing Christ Jesus. We're to point away from ourselves and point towards Jesus Christ. And three, we're to proclaim the name of Jesus among the nations. We're to go to our families, our neighbors, our friends, and to strangers. And we're to come and say, we have found the Messiah. Come and see. Just as Andrew witnessed to Peter, just as Philip witnessed to Nathaniel. We're to be like the woman at the well. Come, see, is this not the Christ, your only hope? And lastly, number four. The gospel. Jesus' glory revealed to us through this book, the way of eternal life should produce a seriously unnatural joy in the life of the believer. A joy that the world does not understand. And when I say joy, I mean the biblical word. I don't mean be happy all the time and be in a good mood all the time. I mean the biblical word joy, which means kara, which means inner gladness, inner peace, the, the thing that the world 
is looking for, which is only answered in Christ. Inner gladness, inner peace, so unnatural that with bliss, we can taste the sweetness of God even as it pours through the fiercest thunderstorms in our lives. James Spurgeon. A joy that baffles the world. A joy that says, you can have this world. Give me Jesus. A joy that says, everything else is rubbish in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. So my appeal is to those who are unsaved this morning, in this meeting or listening online, those who have never in their lives repented of their sin, acknowledged their need for a Savior and trusted Christ as that Savior, I appeal to you to hear the, the words of the Lord, follow me. To repent and believe in Jesus Christ because without him there is no hope. But in him there is everything you could ever need. That's the flip side of that. And my appeal to Christians is this. Live the life you were made for. A life that points away from yourself into the glory of God. A life that glorifies God and enjoys God. A life that is seriously unnatural joy. And go out of here today in response to who Jesus is, proclaiming that truth to the nations. We have found the Messiah. Come and see. Amen. We're just going to pray before I hand over to Marcus and the team. Father, we, we thank you that we can assemble here to, today on this Lord's Day and say we have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah because you revealed him to us. You didn't leave us in our helpless estate, Father. You made a way whereby we could be saved and it's through Jesus Christ, it's newness of life, it's everlasting life. It's forgiveness of sins. It's unnatural, serious inner gladness and inner peace that you wrought in the life of your children, God. I thank you for that this morning. Help us be people who proclaim that, God, who echo that among the nations. Christ is Lord, and he's the answer to everything that is going on in our world today. Help us be the sheep of your pasture and the people of your flock whose highest allegiance is to you. Thank you for salvation. Father, please move in conviction by your Spirit among those who are either hearing this online or with us right now. And Father, we pray, save them by your grace. And likewise, Lord, for Christians in this meeting now, encourage us and refresh us. In Jesus' name, amen.